Hello, governor. <laughs> you gotta warn me. Welcome back. Hello, dears. <laughs> this is Murder's Night Out. <laughs> I'm Anna. I'm Lance. And this fucker's back. <laughs> <laughs> So you joined us again, guys. Uh, as you can hear, Lance is still here with me. Emily, hello, hello. <laughs> Emily is still fighting a rapidly spreading disease. <laughs> Her poor family. She just can't catch a break. I swear. <laughs> so I told y'all that, that this was going to be a multiple parter. If you're back, you know that this is the case of the West. Memphis 3. Well, guys, I just don't know when to stop. There is... True story. Oh, my God. There's so much to this this case that, like, you know, you don't even see in the documentary that are done in, like, judge quarters and stuff like that. Of course, we'll get back into that later. Um, But before we get started, are you excited? Oh, yes. Absolutely. What do you think of doing your first podcast episode last time? It was interesting. A little different setting than... Live streaming, you know, <laughs> live streaming. I'm talking to actual people and chat. And who wants to talk to people? I guess I do. Oh, <laughs> that's where me and you differ. Yes. Oh, uh, speaking of, hello to our UK listeners and Ireland listeners, Canada, Australia, Australia. Did I say United Kingdom? Yes, I did say United Kingdom. I'm sorry. Like, what the hell? That's so awesome. I'm so excited. Yes, this is awesome. Th thanks, guys, for giving us a chance. And I wish Emily was here to celebrate. <laughs> what are you crying for? I don't know. Oh. Anyways. Being sympathetic. <laughs> She'll be back, though. She'll be back. We're giving her, you know, some time to, you know, rest up. And it just, she just can't catch a break. Poor girl. Yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, there's really no easy way. Once again, I know I say that every time, but we're just gonna, I got a lot of stuff to cover and unpack. Mm -hmm. So we're just gonna dive right on in. So we last left off, Jesse had just given his confession and the police decided that that was good enough for an arrest. So around 1028 on June the 3rd, 1993, all three boys were arrested and charged. Uh, Judge Rainey had signed off on the warrant to arrest and search their houses. Now, what's interesting, and I found this in that book, Devil's Knot, was that to, in order to sign warrants or make an arrest of, or search houses, that late at night, there had to be extenuating circumstances. Like, you know, there had to be some good reason for a judge to do that, like, according to, like, Arkansas state law. So I don't know how they maneuvered that or what they quote-unquote had. Seemed like they were already maneuvering some laws to begin with since they were under under investigation. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so following the arrest, uh, Inspector Gary Gitchell had held a press conference making the announcement. Of course, during this 
press conference, he reassured that the community that the killers were caught. He was praising detectives for their work. I use the term loosely. And if this is a dick move or just to show the sheer, I don't even know the word for it, to show the sheer just confidence, and I I use that term loosely as well, of their investigation, one reporter had actually asked Gary Gitchell, um, on a scale from one to ten, how confident uh, do you think your case is? His response was, eleven. Yeah, right. (laughs) Aside from Jesse's confession, they had several statements from witnesses who were all between the ages of 12 and 17. Right. Uh, The only actual adult witness that they had was Vicki Hutchison, the one I had mentioned in the last episode. Yeah, who was only corroborative of their uh, satanic stuff, right? Yeah, she had... Quote, unquote. She had stated that... Jesse and Damien had taken her to that quote unquote Esbat, which is a uh, satanic cult get together orgy type thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyways, yeah. now normally in this, you know, there's there's information that police are supposed to keep to themselves, right? Because it could hinder the investigation. And yes. Boy, was this investigation fucked up from the start. Shocker. (laughs) Family members at some point were given a copy or somehow obtained a copy of Jesse's statement. What? Yes. How the hell did that happen? I'm not sure. Somehow, family members and the community, and of course, this got out and spread like fucking wildfire. And to the point to where Gail Grinnell, after uh, the boys were arrested, had marched into uh, marched into uh, Brian Ridge's Detective Brian Ridge's office. She had so many different questions. She was like, "How could the murders? How could my son be responsible for this at 12 p.m.? My son was in school. I have proof." And then she brought up the fact that there were so many different changing stories. So Mm -hmm. Gail Grinnell was Jason's mom. And she was like, there are so many different stories. And she even said, and this was according to that book as well, that she even stated, how could anybody believe that? The story is changing so, so many times. And of course, Ridge was, to me, in a way, kind of, and according to the statement, it was kind of gaslighting her. He was like, well, if we won't know something along, we won't know Jason's side until he talks to us. You know, we need him to talk to us. And then, of course, Gail was like, well, I told him not to talk to y'all because y'all put words in people's mouths. The convers- right. so- conversation went somewhere along those lines. And, of course, Ridge was very condescending to her and was like, words in people's mouths? We record everything. So how can we put words in people's mouths? Bullshit. We record everything. Bullshit. Just remember the whole we record everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I would have been like, really? You record everything? We'll find out, won't we? Mm-hmm. Anyways, so of course she was visibly and understandably so upset. Now, not only did... The family members receive a copy, but like I said, 
News of this spread like wildfire. Naturally. Jesse's statement got out to the public and the day after and the day after the arrest, Judge Rainey had issued an order denying public review of uh, the documents. However, it was too late at that point because this he issued his uh, order on Friday, but by Monday, the commercial appeal had ran a story that had the outline of the confession. And the headline was teen describes cult torture of boys and defendant. Miss Kelly tells police of sex mutilation. Oh, geez. This order came a little too late and it came at a very wrong time. Like obviously this stuff had already gotten out. So why issue the order now? Because guess what happened because of this order? Only satanic headlines dominated the newspapers and reporters were not able to see all the detail and dive into the real, the real thing or every little thing. They the only had a, bolts of it. I think, uh, in one of the, in the book, it talked about that Saturday, someone had actually called the commercial appeal or one of the news stations trying to sell a copy of the statement to them. Oh my God. Yeah really yes so after this the commercial appeal actually filed a formal request for the record uh, citing the arkansas freedom of information law they wanted to sort out fact versus rumor for obvious reasons right, right. however it was denied <laughs> and they declared that the information contained in this record was sensitive and inflammatory and prejudicial to the defendants are you fucking kidding me really like i, I heard that and i was like what the fuck obviously Dude. but the damage is already fucking done yeah too little too late now and now you're gonna suppress the information to where they can't verify some of this shit right Ugh. So with Jesse's statement or confession being the only real evidence that they had, the police were under a lot of pressure to find something else or some other type of evidence linking the boys to this. Yeah, trying to validate. Yeah, because a lot of the times a confession by itself is, isn't enough. Is really hard to that to just be the only evidence you have. Right. So in an attempt to this. They interviewed Aaron Hutchison again, the little eight-year-old boy that was friends with Michael and all of them. That was the son of Vicki Hutchison. Mm -hmm. So they inter he was interviewed again by Don Bray after the arrests. All of a sudden, his story changed again. Sharker. All of a sudden, he witnessed the murders and was able to ID all three of the killers. Yeah, uh -huh. and that Remember, changed. Remember before, he wasn't able to identify Damien or any of them in a photo lineup. Right. But now, right. since it was blasted, it he just conveniently... Oh, he just now, happened to remember. Now, I am not shaming an eight-year-old boy. Mara Leverett made a very good point that, honestly, Aaron was also a victim in all of this because, as you can see, his he was interviewed over a dozen times yeah, which and is crazy each time his story kept changing 
And, you know, we, we have small children. A lot of the time when you're not given the answer you want, or they believe they're not giving you the answer they want, they'll change their story. Just to give just you to, the answer you want. Exactly. To get yeah. that, I guess, praise, so to speak, or whatever, mm-hmm. validation. Yeah. So I don't blame him at all. He was young. And, but this is just another shitty situation to where another kid was a victim or a pawn for somebody else's game. Right. He also stated all were wearing black shirts with dragons on them. (laughs) He also added in this that he had seen Jesse cut all three of the boys genitalia with this. Gitchell was interested to interview him again. And so he did. And at this point, he added to his story that he had seen all three of the victims tied up with rope. Rope. Oh, geez. This wasn't until after Jesse's statement got out. This shit's crazy, bro. It's sad and it's fucking insane. So we were going to trial. Mm -hmm. and Dan Stidham was the Jesse's court-appointed lawyer. Just a little side note before we get to the actual trial for Jesse, and this will come into play later. later. In the book, Devil's Knot, the author had recounted something that Dan Stidham had actually wrote or interviewed or something along those lines. This was from the point of you from Dan. He even admitted that he initially believed Jesse was guilty. You know, the whole mindset, why would he confess to such a heinous crime? Which is, you know, it's logic. Any logical human being would think that because as I said, right, I've never been in that situation, but I'm like, why would anybody confess to something? They didn't do. They didn't do, especially something of this magnitude. Right. He, when he was first assigned to Jesse, he was actually trying to negotiate a plea bargain to, you know, so Jesse could receive a lesser sentence in exchange for testifying against Damien and Jason. Right. But when Jesse started trying to recant, because apparently there were some visits from his dad and whatnot, and he just, he finally... He, he just tried to recant and said something. He was just trying to get out of there. Uh, Dan said he actually got somewhat angry because he was trying to help this kid out who had the death penalty hanging over his head. Yeah. And Jesse recanting was not going to allow that plea bargain to happen because Jesse had to testify against Damien. And if he recants, he can't testify. He can't testify. So at some point, Dan was demanding the truth because it was like when his parents were there, he would say he didn't do it. And then once they left, he kept trying to go over the story again, but each different time he could never get the same thing. He could never get the same thing, nor could he repeat what he had quote unquote said in his confession. Right. So eventually Dan demanded the truth. And finally Jesse had admitted to Dan that he wasn't there. And of course, Dan was like, why, why would you say that? And Jesse was like, I didn't want, quote, I didn't want to die in that electric chair, end quote. Wow. Yeah. So this led to the realization that Dan finally realized Jesse didn't fully understand 
what was going on. He didn't even realize who Stidham was. He didn't realize that Stidham was on his side. He thought Stidham was just another detective or someone of the court there to grill him, basically. To grill him. Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually really fucking sad. Like he didn't even realize who Bill Clinton was. He didn't even know who Bill Clinton was. And Bill Clinton was just elected president of the United States at this time. Right. So that's just how limited his intellectual ability was. He didn't even know who Bill, the president of the United States was at that time. Right. Didn't recognize the name. This is really sad. At some point, uh, Dan Stidham had recalled Jesse had asked him who Satin was. <clears throat> Dan was like confused and puzzled. Like what? Well, Jesse had handed him a pamphlet. A minister had given him that was all about Satan. Oh, geez. All this time, this boy who is, you know, accused of satanic worship and satanic cults and talked about the devil, was referring to Satan as Satan. He could barely read the pamphlet. Hmm. He had no idea or never even heard of the devil referred to as Satan. Right. So in my mind, he had no idea what a satanic cult was because right. he, he didn't, didn't know who Satan was. He had only heard him referred to as uh, opening statements began on January the 26th, 1994. Everybody showed up to this courthouse. It was held in Corning, Arkansas, which they moved for a change of venue because of the popularity <laughs> and to keep it from being biased mm -hmm. and whatnot. Everybody and anybody reporters, everything. And this is where the um, documentary What's really fucking sad is surrounding area popularity, I guess you could say, that one spectator was interviewed by a reporter. If I remember correctly, I think this was actually on the Paradise Lost documentary, the part one. I can't remember. This person was quoted as saying that this trial was a waste of time. <laughs> what happened to innocent until proven guilty? Yeah, really. This is a, another child. Now, I understand that this was obviously a horrendous crime. And who's to say I wouldn't have been the same way if I truly thought somebody was guilty. But, you know, hindsight is... 2020. Yeah. But frying... I don't know. It's really, it's really sad. It's just an all-around sad case. No matter which way you look at it. Yeah, six kids don't need to die. Yeah. And, three's enough. And I get three's too many. Yeah, three is too many, but yeah. definitely don't need three to add to many. that number. And I understand that, you know, this was, it, it was, it was horrendous. Absolutely was. horrendous. And I saw the photos and honestly, I cried when I saw them. That's why it took me a second to really do this because watching that documentary again, because they show all of that, it was it was horrifying and it was, it really rips your heart out. So I get that the public was enraged. Now during the trial, Jesse sat down with his head down. Most of the time, he didn't really look at the judge. He didn't really look at the jury. Didn't look at the public. This was advised by his, by Dan, because he didn't want Jesse to look cocky or overconfident mm -hmm. or anything like to send the wrong message. Right. But this was also taken as, why wouldn't he look at anybody? He he must be guilty. 
You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. So opening statements began on January the 26th. A prosecution, the lead prosecutor was John Vogelman and his partner was the district's main prosecutor, Brent Davis. Oh my Lord, this guy. You know, the guy that let the cops off mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> for stealing evidence. Yep. <laughs> I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's super fucking uncomfortable <laughs> yeah. at this point. Side note, John Fogelman was already very well known in the community. And I found this interesting. The author mentioned it also in this book that John Fogelman's family was, you know, they were one of the oldest in the state or country. I don't know. They were one of the oldest in the area. Right. There's even a monument dedicated to Fogelman's great great grandfather near the courthouse in marion why is there a monument to john fogelman's great great grandfather you ask uh i don't know (laughs) you tell me so apparently fogelman's great great grandfather whose also name was john we're gonna call him grandpa john we got grandpa john and then john gotcha got it This monument was for Grandpa John's role that he played in one of the, at the time this book was written, was one of the greatest maritime disasters in American history. So at the end of the Civil War in 1865, Grandpa John was operating a ferry on the Mississippi River. Maritime, like marine time. Right. So I thought I'd explain that because I was kind of confused. I was like, oh, Mary, what? Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So he was operating a ferry on the Mississippi River. Sometime in April of that year, the steamship Sultana was traveling upstream with newly released Union prisoners of war. Sometime in the middle of the night, the ship had exploded near Fogelman's Landing. Grandpa John had rescued as many as he could, but eight over 1,800 men had either burned to death in the explosion or drowned in the freezing water. More lives were lost in this explosion than the Titanic. Oh, wow. Put that into perspective. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. I was like, what? Mm -hmm. And, you know, not a lot of people heard about this because it was actually overshadowed by the fact that Abe Lincoln was assassinated right before this. Oh, okay. So... I had no idea about this either. I was like, what? Yeah, I never heard about that. Because that's not far from us. Yeah. So. Right across the bridge. Yeah. Well, this was on the Mississippi River between Memphis and Arkansas. Oh, well, yeah. So. Right next to Memphis. I was like, what? Yeah. So there was a monument near the Marion County Courthouse commemorating Grandpa John's role in this. Wow. So. Fogelman and his family were very well known. They also, they all had some kind of, starting from there, all the way up until this John, some kind of involvement in either the school board, lawyers. I mean, there was a whole list of stuff. So they were very well known. In the community. In the community and this, you know, this area. Right. So John Fogelman, in his opening statements, I just thought I wanted to add that whole maritime disaster because i found it quite interesting yeah it was interesting. so i went off on a tangent uh but in his opening statements of course he recounted the timeline leading up to the discovery he went over the medical examiner's findings 
He also mentioned uh, the young woman who had a son that was the victim's age and was so distraught that she decided to play detective to help how this person was taken to the Esbat and how this person led them to Jesse. He went on the defense before, honestly, the case, uh, the whole trial even started because in his opening statements, he had acknowledged that there were discrepancies in Jesse's confession to the facts. Yeah. So, but <laughs> so he, he already knew. Yeah. But he went on to explain that this was Jesse's failed attempt to minimize his involvement in the crimes. Mm -hmm. This was all in opening statements. He encouraged them to only focus on the things that Jesse said that only the killers would know, like the cut in the face, the castration, and all three boys being beaten. But this was public fucking... Everybody knew that. This was not in his opening statement, but this was public fucking knowledge. John Byers was interviewed at the scene. He had given... A lot of this information to the reporter that he claimed he got from another detective. So whether some of this was taken from, you know, only the killers would know or what, part of this was already out. I just needed to add that in there. Mm -hmm. So after Fogelman finished his opening statements, Dan Stidham began his opening statements. He, of course, noted that... He recognized the pressure that the police were under. He also stated that this is why they got, quote unquote, Damien Eccles tunnel vision, because he said the case was really about Damien, but Jesse was just collateral damage. Now, it's important to note that before this trial even took place, Dan had argued for months to try to get Jesse's confession thrown out on the basis that he was obviously mentally impaired and that jesse was a minor at the time and should be tried in juvenile court yeah but judge david burnett allowed it to happen so in his opening statement he you know touched on that this was a false confession you know he kind of went through that you know going over the false confession confession argument about how He was factually incorrect in a lot of the details that were the most important. Right. And how even though during this confession, these were incorrect, but the detectives continued to interview him despite what he was saying was wrong. And it was like that they were just going to continue to question him until they got the answers they wanted. Yep. So Dana Moore and Melissa Byers were one of the first witnesses called as a witness for the prosecution. They call were called to the stand to recount the night that their boys disappeared and go through all that. And then Detective Brian Ridge was called witness for the prosecution. He recalled the day that he had found the boys and then on the stand he began to cry, which I understand. I mean, yeah. I cried looking at watching this happen because I mean, in that wouldn't? documentary at the very, very, very beginning, it shows them pulling the boys from the water mm. and it's not blurred out. I can't. It's not slow trigger warning. Like if you watch it, it's there. So I can understand his emotional reaction on the stand recounting this because I wasn't there and this was 
a long time ago, but watching it play out on the TV in real, like real life or I cried. So, yeah, I mean, who wouldn't, um, after he recounted, you know, what he, after detective Brian Ridge recounted everything from the day he found the boys, the boys bikes were brought into the courtroom and put into evidence and remained in the front of the courtroom for the rest of the trial. Oh, man. So the whole time that they're going through this, those bikes are sitting there for everybody to see. Of course, that's going to affect... Drive up emotions. Yes. And then Fogelman proceeded by handing pictures of the boys' bodies on the side of the riverbank to the jury so they could review them. Mm. Now, next up was Dr. Frank Peretti, he was also a witness for the prosecution. He was the medical examiner that performed the autopsies. Um, he you know, went over the autopsy findings. And as he was doing this, photos of the boys on the autopsy table were handed to the jury to review as Dr. Peretti was going through this. Um, while he was up there, he explained that there were limits to his autopsy due to the length of time that the bodies were in the warm weather because this was in May. In yeah. Arkansas, <laughs> near the Mississippi River. Yeah, yeah. And if you live in this area... Humid. May, I mean, really March to November is horrible. Yeah, yeah. It's... Maybe, maybe middle of October. You never know. Like, it's humid. It's so, like Satan's armpit. Literally. Literally. <laughs> uh, so, it's definitely can mess with autopsy findings or his real his real thing as far as going over this was he was unable to estimate the time of death right which is important because jesse had so many varying times in his confession which is what this whole trial was based on now on cross-examination from dan stidham you know jesse had mentioned in his confession about the boys being choked well Dr. Frank Peretti said that the boys had not been choked. Um, he was also asked, Jesse had said something about the boys being raped. Jesse had said that in his statement. Aaron had said that in his statement. But Frank Peretti said that the boys were not raped. So next up was Gary Gitchell. He was called to explain the circumstances that led to the confession. He explained that during their interrogation of Jesse or their quote unquote, just interview with them, because if you read the court transcripts, one of the detectives stated that Miss Kelly was not a suspect at this point. Right. But during this uh, interview, interrogation, whatever, he had played a recording of a small child to see how Jesse would react. Gitchell was asked to play that recording that he played for Jesse in the exact same manner that he had played it for Jesse. And they wanted him, them to play it to the courtroom. I feel like I repeated myself a lot in that sentence, but <laughs> it's okay. So when the recording was played for the courtroom, it was said of a little boy and it was very eerie sounding where the little boy said, quote, no one knows what happened, but me end quote. And then the tape recording ended there. Now, following that recording, no one asked to explain the circumstances surrounding that recording. Nobody asked what, how they got that recording. Nobody asked. Nothing was said about the surrounding circumstances 
to this recording, which it was the recording of Aaron Hutchison and his many changing stories. Right. All the jury knew was that this was rec- recording was played. And then shortly after Jesse confessed and we're going to play portions of that recording for you. So you can listen yourself. I will put a link in the show notes so you can listen to the entire recording. The entire recording is 34 minutes long, but I wanted to give you the main portion of it. And I wanted you to hear it for yourself. Now this next segment, there is a trigger warning. There's a lot of sexual and graphic content. So if you do not want to listen to that, please skip forward and we will go on to the next segment. But I do want to warn you, there is some graphic content. At the bottom of this form is a waiver of rights. It says, I've read this statement of my rights and I understand what my rights are. I'm willing to make a statement and answer questions. I do not want a lawyer at this time. I understand and know what I'm doing. No promises or threats have been made to me, and no pressure or force has been used against me. Is all that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. And you signed the bottom of the form? Yes, it is. Witnessed by Michael Wayne Allen and myself, Detective Brian Ridge. Okay. Jesse, let's go straight to that date, 5-5-9-3, Wednesday, early in the morning. You received a phone call, is that correct? Yes, I did. And who made that phone call? Jason Boss. Alright. What occurred? What did he talk about? He called me and asked me could I go uh, go to West Memphis with him and I told him no, I had to work and stuff and then he told me he had to go to West Memphis, so him and Damien went and then I went with them. Alright, when? Wednesday. Alright, when did you go with them? <coughs> that morning. At nine o'clock in the morning? Yes, I did. Okay. I went with them. And then I, no. Were you in a car? Whose car were we on? We walked. No walk? Okay. We walked. And then I, Where did you go? We went to Robin Hood. You went to the Robin Hood. Okay. Explain to me where those woods are. About uh, Blue Beacon, so far. Just a little patch of woods. A little patch of woods. Behind Blue Beacon? Behind it. Right back there, behind it. Okay. What occurred while you were there? When I was there, I saw Damien hit this one, hit this one boy real bad, and then, uh, then he started screwing him and stuff. And then, uh, all right, you've got in front of you a picture that was taken out of the newspaper, I believe. It's got three boys, and these are the three boys that were killed on that day in Robin Hood Woods. Okay. Which one of those three boys is it you say Damien hit? The third picture, which will be... This boy right here? Yeah. All right, that's uh, the buyer's boy. Christopher. That's who you're pointing at? Mm-hmm. If you read the caption, the grizzly slain from left, eight-year-old Michael Moore, Stephen Branch, and Christopher Byers. Okay. So... You saw Damien strike Chris Byers in the head. Right. What did he hit him with? He hit him with his fist and bruised him all up real bad. Then uh, Jason turned around and hit Steve Branch. Okay. And started doing the same thing. Then the other one took off 
Michael Moore took off running, so I chased him and grabbed him and held him to they got there and then I left. Okay. All right. When you get the boys back together, where are you at from the creek? I was up by the uh, service road. Up by the service road? Okay. Now, when this, when he hits the first boy, where are they at when he, when he hits him? Are you in the woods? You're on the side of the big bow? You're out in the field? Where are you I'm at? In the woods. In the woods. Okay, you've been down there in those woods before. Can you describe to me what in those woods, what's the location where you were? Um, is there a path you go down? I was down the little path. All right, where does that path go to? It leads out there close to the uh, field, close to the interstate. Okay. Up where I was at. All right. Close to the interstate. When he hits the first boy, and then Jason hits another boy, and one takes off running. No, Where does he run to? That one, he runs out, going out to, out the park, and I chased him and grabbed him and brought him back. Which way does he go, I mean? Does he going back towards where the houses he are? Is he going to Blue Beacon? Is he going out towards the fields? Where does he run to? Towards the houses. Towards the houses. Where the pipe is that goes across the water? Yeah. Okay. He runs out there, and I called him and brought him back. And then I took off. Okay. Well, you came back a little bit later, and all three boys are tied. Mm -hmm. Is that right? And then I took off and went home. All right. Have they got their clothes on when you saw them tied? They had them off. They had already gotten them off. When he first hit the boy, when Damien first hit the first boy, did they have their clothes on then? Mm -hmm. All right. When did they take their clothes off? Right after they beat up all three of them and beat them up real bad. Beat them up real bad. And then they took their clothes off. And then, they, then they tied them. Then they tied them up, tied their hands up. They start screwing them and stuff. So that was the first portion of Jesse's confession. There was a couple of things that I wanted to point out. Uh, first off, you know, he starts off saying it happened around 9 a.m. And then that Damien hit the first boy with his fist. And then, as he said, quote, started screwing him and stuff. He is then asked by uh, one of the detectives which boy this was that he hit first. And he points to a picture and the detective asks him to identify him. And he says, it's Michael Moore. Well, you can hear in the confession, he says, he corrects him and says, you mean Chris Byers? Yeah, I caught that. Yeah. And then he said, Jason hit Stevie. And at some point, Michael Moore ran off and that Jesse chased him, brought him back, and then he left. And then the detective talks about, well, how did you get there? Or... Where were you in the woods? And he, you hear him say, suggest, was there like a path or something? And then, of course, Je Jesse confirms. Jesse he repeats exactly, starts right. repeating what he's saying. And then he also asks, well, which way was he running towards? You know, and he gives him a couple of different suggestions. First, he says towards the houses. And then he says, you know, something towards, you know, the Blue Beacon truck wash. 
towards the service road. Well, Jesse then repeats towards the houses. Now, mind you, I, at one point he asked, did the boys have their clothes on? Well, Jesse had said, you know, he left and then he came back or something along those lines. Right. And the detective asks first, you know, did the boys have their clothes on? He says no. Mm-hmm. And then he asks him again later on. So did the boys have the clothes on clothes on when you left? And then he said they had them off when he came back. And then they asked, he begins to ask him again, you know, when did they take the clothes off? Right. And then all of a sudden he had the answers. Yes. When did he, when he was supposedly gone. Right. He's like, when did he take the clothes off after they beat him up and stuff? Right. I saw it and I turned around and looked. And then I took off running. I went home. And then they called me and said, How come I didn't stay? I told them I just couldn't. Just couldn't stay for that. I couldn't stand what they were doing to them. Okay. Now, when it's going on, when it's taking place, you under you saw somebody with a knife. Who had a knife? Jason. Jason had a knife. What did he cut with the knife. What did you see him cut or who did you see him cut? I saw him cut one of the little boys. All right, where did he cut him at? He was cutting him in the face. Cutting him in the face. All right. Another boy was cut, I understand. Where was he cut at? At the bottom. On his bottom? Was he face down and he was cutting on him or? <coughs> now you're talking about bottom. Do you mean right here? Mm-hmm. In his groin area? Okay. Do so right. you know what his penis is? Yeah. That's where he was cut at. That's where he was cut. Which boy was that? You're talking about the buyer's boy again? Okay. Are you sure that he was the one that was cut? That's what I think I'm cutting on. Okay. Do you know what a penis is? Yeah. Right. Is that where he was cutting? That's what I said I'm going down there. And he was on his back. I said I'm going down there like I'm supposed to paint and stuff. And I saw some blood and that's when I took off. Was, uh, were y'all close to the creek at that point? Yes. Where, where was the little boy actually at? He was close. Alright, you know where the bow is. Right. Alright, and you know where the little creek is that goes out to the expressway. And it doesn't have a lot of water in it, but it's got some water in it and it's flowing through there. Which side of that creek were you on? Were you on the Memphis side of the creek or were you on the Blue Beacon side of that creek? Blue Beacon. On the Blue Beacon. Mm-hmm. So there's like a tall bank. Where you? Where were you at on that bank? I was up at stand up at top. All right. Where were they at? Did you hear any more hollering or anything? No. All right. You went home. And about what time was it that all this was taking place? They called me about. I'm not saying when they called you. I'm saying what time was it that you were actually there in the park? I was there about 12. About noon? Mm-hmm. Okay. Was it after school? I let out? I didn't go to school. Well, these other no, boys. No, they skipped school. They skipped they school. They were going to catch so at this point he starts um you know saying cutting them and stuff and then he once again 
says he's left again. And this is the third or fourth time he said that. Now, this is when the injuries come in. You know, the detective starts mentioning the knife. And then Jesse follows suit and says, yes, there was a knife or something like that. And then the detective starts going over the injuries that's happened, you know, saying, is did you start cutting him in the face? I, I understand there was another boy that was cut. Where was he cut? And then he starts talking about, you know, being cut on the bottom and stuff. And, you know, there's just a lot of, Jesse's not leading this conversation. No, not at all. He's being, he's been, he's being given options and either confirming or choosing from one of the options. And if he chooses the wrong option, well, are you sure? Exactly. So that was another thing is that, you know, the detective asks him to ID which one's being cut on the quote unquote bottom. Right. And he said he, he identifies one. Or points to him or something. This is just the audio, so I can't see it. And the, you hear the detective say, are you sure? Right. <laughs> Indicating that it he had pointed to the wrong one. Exactly. And then, once again, he's asked, what time did all of this take place? And then he starts to say, well, they called. No, I'm not asking what time they called you. What time were you in, in the park or whatever? He's, again, changed his time to 12 p.m. Noon, yeah. And then you hear the detective say, so was this after school? <laughs> right. And Jesse's trying to come up with an explanation, and he says they didn't go to school. They skipped school. Right. They were on the bikes. Where were their bikes at? They, they laid their bikes down when they came out there to the... When they, when they hollered for them to come out there. Where, where did they lay their bikes down? That's what I'm asking. I don't know where they laid their bikes down at. Because I was, I was behind Danny and Neil, way, way behind them. Okay. And when they hollered... Then I see the boys. The boys came on over. Mm-hmm. Had Damien seen these boys before? Yes. Has he done things with them before? Or has he just been watching them? He's been he had watching sex with them before? Them. Has he ever had sex with any of them before? He's been watching them. You mentioned earlier that at one of the meetings you went to with this cult thing, they had some pictures. Describe those pictures for them. They had... Past my houses, the trees and stuff. Okay. Had somebody taken pictures of these boys? Mm-hmm. Were they in the houses or were they in these trees when they took those pictures? They were in the houses. At the houses. Did they take like one picture of one boy? It was in a group. Always three? It was a group of pictures of three. Okay. All three of them would generally be together. How many pictures did you see all together? I just saw one. Okay. And it had these same three boys in it? Mm-hmm. You're certain of that? Mm-hmm. So here we hear the detective ask, you know, he starts bringing in, well, has Damien been watching these boys? And what does Jesse do? Yes. He repeats it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had been watching them. And then... He starts to say, you had mentioned earlier about one of these cult meetings. Well, I just want to point out, we don't know what Jesse mentioned earlier because it's not in this confession and they didn't tape it. Right. So how do we know he mentioned this earlier? Not saying he didn't, but 
We don't know if he mentioned this earlier or not at this point because it wasn't recorded. Exactly. Nate, did you say the boys skipped school that day? These little boys did? Mm-hmm. Are you They was going to catch up, going somewhere. And like I said, David, Damien and them left before I did. I told them I made them there and stuff. I had to get ready and stuff. I made them there. And it was early in the morning, so they wouldn't have met me up. They wouldn't have went up there and then I came up, you know, later on behind them. What time did you get there? I got there about nine. In the morning? Mm-hmm. Of Wednesday morning? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when, what time is it right now? Right now? Yeah. You don't know what time it is? Do you not wear a watch? Mm-hmm. So, my dad woke me up this morning. Your time period might not be exactly right what you're saying. Right. But it, it was like early in the day, but you don't know exactly what time. Okay. Because we got, I've got some real confusion with the times you're telling me. But now, this nine o'clock in the evening call that you've got, explain that to me. Well, after all the stuff happened that night, that they'd done it. Okay. I went home about noon, then they called me at nine o'clock at that night. They called me. Okay. And what did they tell you on the telephone? They asked me how come I left so early and stuff. And I told them I couldn't stand there watching it no more, so I had to do something to get out of there. Okay. Who called you? Jason. And you mentioned you heard some voice in the background? I heard some things. And what else? I think you said that he made the call from his house? He made a call from his house. And Damien was hollering in the background and said, we've done it, we've done it. What we're going to do if somebody saw us, what we're going to do. Okay. Now, the knives. Was there one knife, two knives? Mm-hmm. Was your knife there? Mm-hmm. Did somebody take you to use your knife? Do you have a knife? I got one knife. Where is it at? At home. Okay. The knife that, you said Jason was using? Mm-hmm. Where is it? I don't, I don't know what he done with it because after I left, then that's when I don't know what they done with it. After I left, I don't know what they done with it. You tell me you hit it somewhere. Okay. I, I got a feeling here. You're not quite telling me everything. Now, we're, you know, we are recording everything. So this is very, very important to tell us the entire truth. If you were there the whole time, then tell us you were there the whole time. Don't leave anything out. This is very, very important. Now, just tell us the truth. I was there until they tied them up. And then that's when I left. After they tied them up, I left. But you saw them cutting on the boy. I saw them cutting on them. And then they so what, what else left is there they after laid, that? They laid the knife down beside them. And I saw them tying them up. And then that's when I left. Were the boys conscious? Or were they... They were unconscious. Unconscious. Okay. And then after I left, they done more. They done that. They started screwing them again. Okay. How were they screwing them when you saw them? They were, they just took his in one of them's mouth, and Damien was screwing one of them up there. Okay. All right, and the one that they were cutting the penis off of, did any of them are cutting the penis or whatever was being done? Did they have sex with him at all? No. Did either one of them? J- uh, Jason did. 
ใจสำเร็จใจสมุทรคนนี้วาใจหนุนตะเกียบแล้วก็พูดว่า Okay How did he have sex with that one? ใจมือให้มือเท่าหนุนใจเอาไปอ่าฮะใจสินใจสิเลยจะเป็นอะไรแล้วก็พูดคิดไปอันเดียวเดียวมาเที่ยง Okay He had his legs up in the air. All right. What was to keep these little boys from running off? If just their hands are tied, what's to keep them from running off? They beat them up so bad, where they can't hardly move. They haven't tied have their hands tied down. Right. You, you said they had their hands tied up, tied down. Were their hands tied in a fashion to where they couldn't have run? You tell me. They they can run. They just have them tied. When they knock them down, and stuff, they can hold their arms and stuff, and they hold them down like when you cut legs up, and the other one pick his legs up. Okay. Yeah. So they had them under control. You were there the whole time that was taking place. Okay. Okay. One of them was cut on the face real bad. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. And one of them was being cut on his penis. Mm-hmm. Right. Did you ever use? Did anyone use a stick and hit the boys with? Damien had kind of a big old stick when he hit that first one. After he hit him with the spear, knocked him down, and then he got him a big old stick. What did the stick look like? I mean, was it like a a a, a big log like that, or is it, or is it a stick? Yeah, I said about that, about that big round. I said about that long. Okay. About the size of a baseball bat, maybe just a little bit bigger around. Yeah. That's what you described with your hands, right? Right. Okay. How long was the knife that Jason was using? All right. You're describing a knife that would be about. Six inches long, is that right? Mm-hmm. And what kind of blade did it have on it? Uh, like a regular, just regular knife blade. Was it a knife that you fold up, or was it a like a hunting knife that's just one piece? Just fold up knife. It was a folding knife. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there's a couple of different things that I want to point out with this particular segment. Uh, The first one being, you know, they start, they ask him about the call and where he once again says, you know, I just, I had to leave. I couldn't take it. I left, you know, they asked, why didn't you stay or, you know, whatever. And then this is where the detective goes into, well, what about the knives? Where are they? And Jesse's, I don't know. And then the detective follows up with, I get the feeling you're not quite telling me the truth. Right. I need, you know, or you're not telling me everything. Now, this could be looked at depending on which side you stand on. Uh, he could be minimizing his role in the situation. He could right. be trying to separate himself from the crime. Right. You know, yeah. we don't know. And then he begins to say, again, I left after they tied him up. But then follows that with, after a few more questions, you know, they done more after they tied him up. Right. And he's got all this information but that they, happened after he supposedly left. Right. And then they began screwing him and stuff again. But I thought he left. Now, right. 
remember we went over the autopsy report in episode one. There were no signs of rape. Right. So this could be either, you know, their bodies being in the water, you know, the signs of that had, you know, gone away, you know, evidence had been destroyed or when he's saying, you know, but he left once again, he could be minimizing his, you know, role in the crime, who knows. And then, but at the end of that, towards the end of that, now he's been there the whole time. Right. And then when they ask what kind of knife, he says a fold up knife. Keep that in your back pocket. <laughs> Let me ask you something. This is real serious, and I want you to be real truthful. And I, w- I, w- I want you to think about it before you answer. Don't just say yes or no real quick. I want you to think about it. Did you actually hit any of these boys? No. Now tell us the truth. No. Okay. Did you actually rape? Any of these boys? No. Did you actually kill any of these boys? No. Did you see any of the boys actually killed? Yes. Okay. Which one did you see killed? That's that. You're pointing to the buyer's boy again? Mm-hmm. Okay. How was he actually killed? He choked him real bad, like. Choked him? Okay. What was he choking him with? Like a little stick. Just a little stick and kind of holding it over his neck. Okay, so he was choking him to the point where he actually went unconscious? So at that point, you feel like he was dead? Yeah. Okay. Did any of the other two boys, were you there when they were actually killed? You say you got sick of what you were saying. Did you throw up or anything? Mm-hmm. Where did you throw up at? I got a little bit of weight after we took saying that I lived about half a mile of lungs when I threw up. So if I couldn't hardly run or nothing, I threw up. When you left from where, did you leave running? Mm-hmm. Were you hiding? You had some blood on your clothes? I had no blood on me. I, I didn't get close to Were your clothes wet still? Mm-hmm. There's a little damp. Muddy? Mm-hmm. All right, Inspector, get your touched on a point. Real, real close. Now, what clothes was Jason wearing that day, that mm-hmm. night? He, he wore some blue jeans and some boots, like, the army boots. Like. Army boots? And what kind of a shirt? I mean, you know, everybody wears a special shirt for different things. I'm wearing a, a Megadeth shirt. A Megadeth? No, Megadeth Metallica. Metallica shirt. All right, was he wearing a cap? Anything like that? No, he didn't wear a cap. All right, Damien. What was Damien wearing? Damien had some black pants on, some boots, and a black t-shirt. All right, was anything on his shirt? No kind of design or anything. These blue jeans that Jason was wearing, they designer jeans, were they old jeans, wore out, holes? They wore out. What did it look like? They had holes in the knees and stuff. Holes in the knees. What color is Jason's hair? Blonde. 
bright blonde or like a sandy reddish type blonde? You know the difference? It's like a sandy colored blonde. Okay. He's wearing blue jeans. He had a Metallica shirt. This is a shirt that's got Metallica across the front of it, spelled out, and a man's name or something under it, or a picture. Is that right? You tell me. Picture of somebody? Different shirts which one did he have? He had a skull. A skull? Okay. What were you wearing that day? I was just wearing regular blue jeans, my shoes. What kind of shoes were you wearing? My, uh, Adidas. Adidas, tennis shoes? Mm-hmm. Okay. What kind of shirt were you wearing? I was just wearing a regular, one of my old, greasy up t-shirt. Okay. Was it a design shirt, like this bull run type shirt, or was it just a plain white, plain white. old t-shirt? Right. Where are these shoes at now? A friend of mine, John V. Bartle. Alright. Who is that? Buddy Lucas. Buddy Lucas? He borrowed the boots that Damien had on, are they army type boots too, or what kind of boots were they? Close, like army type, not, not quite. Okay. They're black, is that right? Lace up? Mm-hmm. Okay. And Jason, black, lace up? Jason is black up to about quarters wide. Oh, they come way up on him. Okay. Damien didn't come up that far? Okay. They killed the boys you decided to kill. You went home. How long after you got home before you received the phone call? 30 minutes? An hour? Um, an hour after you got home? Okay. So they were there for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. When he called you on the phone, did he say you just got in? Oh, he, 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 he called me when he first got home. He called me. He said, how come I, how come I left? I couldn't stand it. I had to do some nails. Okay. And then you, Damien, you couldn't stand it. And then Damien, I heard Damien in the background saying, we done it, we done it, we were going to let it out. We about to smoke power. Okay. Did anybody see you leave? No. That you know of? I know of. Did anybody see Damien and Jason? I don't know. Have you heard anybody say that they saw Damien and Jason? So here you can see them start off saying, you know, this is real serious. I need you to tell me the truth Mm -hmm. and just further reiterating like that. He's not being truthful. Right. So then he goes into asking the questions about, you know, did you kill the boys? Did you rape the boys? Did you see the boys get killed Right. and everything? And then of course to the, did you see any of the boys killed? Jesse says, yes. Right. And then he asked which boy he says he, well, he points to where they later identify as the buyer's boy. Now he's done said he's left a a numerous amount of times. (laughs) Right. And then when they asked, you know, how he was killed, he said he was choked with a stick over his neck. Yeah. Which 
goes against the autopsies. Yeah. Autopsy report. And then they go in to ask, you know, what was Jason wearing? And he says, blue jeans, boots, and then like a Metallica or Megadeth shirt. Yeah, he said Megadeth at first. Mm hmm. And now keep the boots and everything in your back pocket for later on. Yeah. And then he asks, you know, Damon about Damien. What was Damien wearing? Ugh. What was Damien wearing? You know, he says black pants, black shirt, boots. And then, of course, they ask what Jesse was wearing, you know, Adidas shoes. And then he kind of, they kind of lead him into like, well, what kind of shirt? And then was it a plain, you know, gives him a bunch of different choices. Right. And he says, was it a white shirt? Yeah, it was a white shirt. <laughs> yeah. And it, then he says, well, where they ask, you know, where are these shoes now? And then he says, well, my, I let my friend borrow them, Buddy Lucas, which he'll come up later. Yeah. And then he goes into, he received a phone call about an hour after he left. Yeah. After he's done, mind you. He left before all this happened, supposedly. Well, not, well, not only that, but he starts off by saying, you know, nine o'clock, 12 o'clock. And then in some of the parts of the interview that we skipped, because I didn't want to play the whole thing, but it'll be linked in the show notes for the, uh, the, the link for it. He starts getting later and later and later, but he says he received this phone call about an hour after he left, which at the beginning they said it was like 9 p.m. Well, he said he was there at 9 a.m., so I don't know. <laughs> this statement is all over the place, and yes. it could be looked at, you know, depending on what side you're sitting on, one of two ways. Either, you know, distancing himself from the crime or he really just doesn't fucking know. Yeah, that's the side I'm leaning towards. <laughs> now, I want to go ahead and say um, that this case is, there's so much information that I'm not going to be able to do it justice in just, you know, three or four episodes so I'm going to continue to go through Jesse's trial and then there will be a separate episode for Damien and Jason's. Then there will be an episode on, you know, other potential suspects along with all the evidence that was found, whether it was included in the initial trials or came out later. And then, of course, like I said, the other additional suspects and then the aftermath. But after I just wanted to go ahead and let everybody know about that, that this is going to be a very long case. So I hope you're invested because <laughs> right. I certainly have been. And uh, I was talking with uh, one of my friends that, you know, we really got to talking about this case and, you know, mentioned it. He was, he's a former police officer. You know, he mentioned about looking at it from the side that, you know, they're guilty. So that's when I really dove head in and started looking through all of the case documents and I went down a rabbit hole and this includes, you know, notes from the detectives, all the lab reports. So like I said, buckle in because this is going to be not this particular episode, but this is going to be a long set of episodes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so picking up where we left off after they played this confession, Gitchell was then cross-examined and he admitted, of course, that there were several errors about you know the boys skipping school or you know they didn't skip school 
obviously, nor right. were they killed at noon. Um, one of the things that Jesse also got wrong that, you know, he asked what they were tied up with. Jesse said rope. Well, that's goes against how the bodies were found. They were tied up with shoelaces. Yep. And when asked to explain this, their argument was Jesse simply got confused. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll go with that. Now, Fogelman asked, and this was a dick move, and it took everybody by surprise, by the way. Uh, Fogelman asked Gitchell, you know, was there any evidence to indicate that the boys had been bound with something other than the shoestring? On the stand, Gitchell said yes. Wait, what? <laughs> and you want to know where he got this information from? Where? He said he had personally seen a wound at on one of the boys that had indicated to him that it would have been, or at some point, rope would have been used. Are you fucking kidding me? And he continued to sketch it in court. Oh, my Lord. From memory. <laughs> Bullshit. This was unsupported because this was not anywhere in the police notes, nor... Was it on the med medical examiner's report? Of course, during this, Stidham, which is Jesse's defense lawyer, tried to object, uh, you know, stating that Gitchell was not qualified to make that kind of statement. Burnett overruled and allowed that statement. Oh, my God. And as I said, Burnett allowed Gitchell to draw a picture that he remembered might have been made with the rope. What the fuck? Oh, I have actually Lord. written in my notes, WTF. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, though. Now, next up for prosecution's witness, our good old friend, Vicki Hutchison. Oh, Lord. Not her. <laughs> Stidham objected, and both of the attorneys approached the bench. Uh, Fogelman explained that he wanted her to explain her trip to the Esbat that we talked about earlier. Right. Uh, Stidham tried to, you know, say that this had taken place after the murders and it her statement was completely irrelevant due to there were no signs of cult-like objects found at the crime scene. Uh, Fogelman recited the confession regarding, you know, the cult activities and you didn't hear it in that little segment, but a photo passed around at one of the ga gatherings, which might I add, there wasn't as far as I can tell. I'm still diving into the plethora of notes, no such photo had ever been found. <laughs> In the book, Devil's Knot, Merrill Everett had pointed out how Aaron's involvement and was one of the key players, basically, in this whole right. thing that led us down this road. But come trial, the officials decided not to use his statements because guess what? They were too unreliable to use. <laughs> and... I don't I can't remember if I said it or not earlier, but this poor boy was just honestly another one of the victims because he was put through the fucking ringer. And if you I mean, his statement changed multiple times and, you know, it almost like the same issue with Jesse. If he wasn't giving the right answer, he changed his statement to almost like he was seeking that approval. Yeah, they were. He was being led in the direction that they wanted him right. to go down. So Vicky takes the stand 
and goes through her whole account of the Esbat. And then the next next up for the prosecution was Lisa Sacavicius. I really hope I'm saying that last name right. <laughs> Anyways, she was a crime analyst for the state, Arkansas State Crime Lab. She had testified that the green polyester fiber that was found on the Cub Scout cap at the scene was microscopically similar to a polyester and cotton shirt found during the search of Damien's house. Also similar to a pair of blue pants that were submerged near the bodies. Uh, She also went on to say that a single red fiber found on a white shirt near the victims was microscopically similar to a woman's red bathrobe that was found during the search of Jason's house. She explained that these fibers, because at one point I think that the prosecution was saying, I'm not suggesting that the they were wearing these robes or this, you know, whatever that we found. That's not what happened. Just being very condescending. Right. And she began to explain that the fibers could be moved by primary or secondary transfer. But she also emphasized that even though they were similar, they are not exclusive to those items that many fibers no matter what, are microscopically similar. There are not enough unique individual indicators to narrow it down, basically. That's what I was going to ask is, you know, wouldn't that be the case for, like, most shirts? Yes. Like, they have the same, you know, makeup? Yes, and she even said that the discovery proved nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Stidham asked about... A hair. So apparently there was a negroid hair that was found on the sheet that the body of Christopher Byers was wrapped in when he was sent to the morgue. Um, And this was a negroid hair. And so Stidham asked about that. And she said that the origin was still unknown. So now you remember the kid, William Jones, that we had talked about that talked about this drunk confession earlier. I think it was in part one. Yeah. So apparently this was maybe a Hail Mary on the prosecution. I'm not totally sure. But at some point during his confession, the original confession, Fogelman had a videotape of this. Now this is where Ron Lax comes into play. So Ron Lax was a private investigator for and that was from memphis right and he had come and he his his business from from the book from what i read in the book is that his business had was doing very well and that ron lax would pick and choose cases every now and then to take on you know on his own and this was one of them yeah so ron lax he he came in he wasn't picking sides at first and as we get down the road, you can see, you can see where he's going. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Ron Lax, he had actually visited William Jones before the trial. Hmm. So William had admitted to Ron Lax that he didn't like Damien and he had falsely confessed to his mom. His mom actually believed him and is the one that called the police. When the police came and asked to get a real confession, this taped confession I had just mentioned a second ago, he was afraid and he didn't want to admit 
that he had lied to. He didn't want to admit to his mom that he lied, basically. Right. So he continued with the videotaped confession with the police. Mm-hmm. So while Ron was interviewing him, William agreed to correct this wrong, basically, with Lax in a recorded new statement. He admitted he actually knew nothing about the crime and that no one confessed to anything to him. He admitted that he got his information from rumors and the papers and what he was told. So Ron Lax's assistant, I cannot think, I didn't write her name down, was actually the one because William Jones was up to testify. This was the prosecution, one of their last witnesses. Right. So Ron Lax's assistant actually drove Jones to the courthouse to testify. Once they arrived, Fogelman actually pulled this boy into a private, I'm guessing a private room uh, and questioned him along with the assistant that had driven him to the courthouse. William Jones basically said, told him that he lied. You know, he just wanted to tell the truth and that he made it all up. And this is where in this book, let Marl Everett talks about how Ron Lax overheard him asking Jones if Lax had threatened him, why he was changing his story. Jones uh, denied any kind of uh, threatening and said that he just wanted to tell the truth. And Fogelman quote, did Lax threaten to send the cult out after you? Quote, did he say that they would cut your off? There's a, there's a blank even in the book, end quote. Jones further said, no. Fogelman <laughs> apparently was very visibly upset. Gitchell asked him, how much is he paying you? Oh my God. Because remember, a lot of this community is very, very poor. Jones said nothing. So Fogelman proceeded to tell Jones that he could be arrested for false statements in which Fogelman had intended to pursue. Oh, my Lord. So he, now he's threatening him. Yes. This ultimately resulted in Ron Lax being investigated to where the Arkansas State Police investigator actually reportedly told Burnett that Lax was the only person involved in this investigation and case who had not done anything wrong. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> It's it is wild, dude. <laughs> so finally, up for the prosecution after this wild tale was Jerry Driver. You remember Jerry Driver? Yeah, yeah. So Jerry Driver was called up, and basically Fogelman's strategy with him was to establish the closeness of the three teens, in which Jerry Driver had stated. He had seen the three teens sometime before the murders walking down the street in Marion together. Next up was the defense. Now, immediately, there were obvious alibi issues when it came to Jesse. Yeah. So the reason this was is because Dan Stidham, his defense attorney, never actually, and this was a fail, even Dan admits this later, that this was a fail on his part. In the beginning, he never actually tried to pursue these alibis and validate them. And this was because Dan had actually believed Jesse was guilty at the time. And at one point, uh, either in fur further instilling the guilt into Dan 
was Fogelman had called Stidham and saying that the DNA that was found on on a speck of blood on one of Jesse's shirt was a DNA match to Michael Moore. Later, this was nixed because they told him that it actually wasn't a match. <laughs> and we'll get to that later. So during this time when, you know, Dan is supposed to be getting these alibis checked out, police are actually the ones interviewing witnesses. And at the, you know, during this whole interview of interviewing these witnesses for Jesse's alibi, they're claiming that they didn't know or couldn't remember. And in the book, they said that they, a lot of them were just afraid to get involved. Yeah. Why is this important? Because later when Stidham interviewed these witnesses, they actually gave times to account for all of Jesse's whereabouts leading up all the way to midnight, the night of the murders. But when this was brought up in court, the prosecution was very easily able to knock this out saying, well, you told us you didn't know, or how are you sure right after the, these murders occurred, police are the only ones interviewing these witnesses. So they had it on record where these witnesses are saying, I don't know, I'm not sure. Uh, but when they come in to testify for, on Jesse's behalf, the prosecution was, prosecution was very easily able to say well how do you know you told us you didn't know oh geez i know it sucks now one of the witnesses the defense brought up was marty king marty king was the manager at bojangles yeah and if you remember correctly the night of the murders there was a bloody man that showed up at bojangles was bleeding all over the place in the bathroom and the officers never really followed up on this. However, the next day, Detective Ridge had actually taken some blood scrapings of some of the blood, dried blood that was left. When asked about this on the stand at Jesse's trial about the blood scrapings, what did you do with these? Or what did the lab say? I can't remember. I'm trying to remember this one from memory. Detective Ridge's reply was, can you guess? We lost it. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> he straight up said these <sighs> blood scrapings were lost. You gotta be fucking kidding me. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. You've got to be fucking I'm, kidding me. I'm not. Now, one of the key things that I feel like comes into play with this is the defense really had no budget for experts. These, fam these families were extremely poor below yeah. the poverty line and this was before there was a fund established for the public defender's office for families that lacked the funds to pay for experts yeah so they had no budgets for experts so dan stidham really tried to call in as many favors as he could one being uh, dr william wilkins who was a psychologist and he was initially hired to i say hired dan stidham had actually worked with him previously on a i can't i can't remember a child custody case or something so he called in this favor with dr william wilkins and he was william wilkins actually did it was going to do it for free or yeah. no payment whatsoever anyways he was hired to assess jesse and assess his intellectual limitations. 
he had actually, you know, he affirmed that Jesse's intellect level was at a third or fourth grade level. And this was, you know, part of the defense's plan to say, hey, this is why Jesse confessed. He was, you know, seeking this validation. Yeah. Just like any. I mean, we have young children. Right. They. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. Exactly. However, at some point before the trial, Brent Davis, that other prosecuting attorney had actually dropped a bombshell. So Williams, William Wilkins license was actually about to get revoked due to misconduct regarding some allegations. So this was not going to look good for the defense. It could easily, basically easily be shot down in court saying, well, how do we know his license is revoked? And, It actually ended up getting revoked a couple of months later. The defense also had another witness who, Warren Holmes, who was a polygraph expert. He was nationally recognized. He had worked with the FBI, Texas Rangers, the the RC, Royal Canadian, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP. Um, He had worked on cases such as Watergate, the Kennedy assassination, and it's, I I cannot remember if I mentioned this before. So right before Jesse confessed, and I was wrong about, you know, the amount of hours he was there questioned, they brought him in at 10 a.m. And then that taped confession you heard earlier started at around 2.44. But between this time, none of this was recorded, and apparently Jesse had taken a polygraph test. So... Warren Holmes was a polygraph expert. So Warren Holmes actually believed that the only reason Jesse confessed is because he was just told that he was, quote, lying his ass off. And then shortly after that, confessed. Now, during this polygraph, Jesse was asked, you know, were you involved with this? Did you do anything to these boys? And Warren Holmes actually studied the polygraph test and he believed that Jesse was actually telling the truth about not being involved. So when the prosecution or not the prosecution, the defense called Warren Holmes to the stand to testify about whether this, you know, had any effect on, you know, why Jesse confessed, of course the prosecution objected and ultimately Burnett did not allow any type of testimony regarding the test results of that polygraph test or anything mentioning because and i understand it because polygraph tests are not admissible in court because depending on who reads it it can it can be read different ways so i understand that however during this time when they were in the judge's quarters you know going over all of this after the prosecution objected stidham had it put on the record you know, just in case they wanted to take it to a court of higher appeals about, you know, what Warren Holmes's assessment was, which he thought Jesse was telling the truth about not being involved and where he also gave examples of what could lead to a false confession, Yeah, which was the person doesn't tell you anything you don't already know. What they say contradicts what was found. Yeah. And if a person was being truthful, they would lead it in a narrative form, not... In a suggestive form. Yes. Check, check, and check. And said that the polygraph result could lead to a false confession, especially when they're told they had failed. 
And with a person with a low IQ, they could just ultimately be led to just give up. Like it breaks their will. Ding, 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 ding. Next up for the defense witness was Dr. Richard Offshee. Now he was an actual paid expert witness. And from what I understand and what the book says is that a lot of the family members that were involved in the paradise Lost series, they were, they were given some money by the HBO directors. Well, they offered that money up to pay for this witness to come here and testify. That's pretty cool. So Dr. Richard Offshee was a Stanford university graduate that specialized in police interrogation mm-hmm. when he was on the stand and citing his credentials, the prosecution objected. Imagine that shocker. So once again, they were all called to the judge's quarters where it was ultimately decided that off. She could not testify in his opinion as to whether the confession was true or false or in his opinion, if it was a coerced confession, the whole fucking reason he was there do yeah so ultimately off she was only allowed to testify as to whether the tactics shaped the confession he's up there he's testifying and saying you know that he believes that the tactics that the police used especially with someone i think one of the things he quoted was uh, the person, a person that's likely susceptible to a false confession or coercion is somebody that lacks, has low self-confidence, low IQ. Check. Yeah. Check. And uh, upon cross-examination, Brent Davis actually brought up the word at some point of coerce, coercion. So yeah. then Stidham used this as a gateway to basically... Sneak it in there. Sneak his question in where off she gave examples of Jesse's confession that displayed coercion. The main one being the eight times the time stamp was revisited about when it took place and about the time it took place. Yeah. That being one. And then, of course, a lot of the other things that we had talked about, about the leading and the offering of Mm. options when it came to, was it this or this or this or this? Yeah. Are you sure it wasn't this? Exactly. So closing arguments began on February the 3rd, 1994. Fogelman, the prosecuting attorney, he talked about how the confession was, you know, he confessed and whatnot. And, in his closing statement. And then he was also talking about how, like I said earlier, basically tearing down Jesse's alibi witness statements. And then Stidham got up and in his closing arguments, he addressed the inconsistencies in Jesse's story and the fact that there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. And this is really sad. In his closing argument, he said, quote, the killing of one human being by another is a most heinous act, only excluded by the killing of an innocent man by the state. End quote. Yep. I got chill bumps. (laughs) I got chill bumps when I read that. And next up was the prosecution, the last prosecuting attorney, Brent Davis. He made it a point to bring up the cult activities And at one point, he actually stood behind Jesse, holding up a photograph of Michael Moore above Jesse's head and then reiterating to the jury how he chased him down 
and brought him back. And because of Jesse, Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers are all dead. Well, what do you think anybody's going to do when you make a statement like that? I get that especially if some if somebody's really guilty you want to, he did a good job of hammering his point home right you know the bicycles the two bikes sitting up there at the front mm-hmm. and then holding a picture of michael moore because at the end of the day guys we've got to remember these three little boys jesse jason and damien get talked about a lot but i was listening to a podcast the other day uh, true crime garage and they were interviewing bob ruff who did a very 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 good in-depth basically a reinvestigation of this whole case i'm still listening to it i plan to incorporate it in what i find but talking about how when he initially started looking at this case he couldn't remember he could remember jamie and jesse and damien because they're the ones that get talked about all the time right but Everybody seems to forget the forgotten West Memphis Three, which is Stevie, Christopher, and Michael Moore. So I thought that that was a really good point. So Davis really did a good job, honestly, at hammering home this point. Yeah. If he truly thought that Jesse was guilty. Anyways, so jury went in to, for deliberation at 4.20 p.m. that day, February the 3rd, 1994. They came back with the verdict at 12 p.m. the following day, February 4th, 1994. Jesse was found guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Michael Moore and second-degree murder in Stevie Branch and Christopher Byers. Now, since he was found guilty of the second degree murder, death penalty was taken off the table. However, Jesse received life without parole for the death of Michael Moore, and then 20 years each to be served consecutively for the deaths of Stevie and Christopher. Now, what I find extremely, extremely extremely i cannot say it enough ironic is there was a juror that was interviewed after the sentence was brought down and one of the one of the comments that he made was they didn't take you know the cult activity they would have found him guilty whether the cult activity was involved or not and then also hold on to your hat for this one talk about Uh irony said that it's probably basically along the lines of it's probably a good thing that they didn't put jesse on the stand because the prosecutor probably would have been able to get jesse to say anything imagine that i'm just staring at lands right now imagine that wow (laughs) and I mean, I, if that's not a, a fucking just cherry on top of I, this whole All I fuck. can hear is Alanis Morissette in the background. It's like, rain on wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already been. Isn't it ironic? Yeah. I mean, dude, come on. Like, I that's just... just And that is where we're going to end part two.
I just, I can't with this case. <sighs> it's very. The fact that all of the prosecution's shitty evidence, or not even really evidence, just, you know, confessions or witnesses or whatever, whatever string they were clinging onto was admitted and permissible, but all of the defense's credible witnesses or experts or whatever just gets thrown the fuck out. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what blows my damn mind. It's, it's a very, 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 very troublesome case. And I apologize if I seem like I'm getting loud or I'm very passionate about this case because there's a lot of, there's a lot of missteps and a lot of things that were just done wrong. And, you know, whether you think the three teens are guilty or whether you think they're innocent, these three little eight-year-old boys are the ones that mattered. Yes. And this case was just fucking it was fucked up from the start. It, it, was, it was. It was. It was. It was mishandled from the start. Yes. And it's just sad. I just can't get past the whole Bojangles thing. Like, uh, well, we'll get into dude. him. We'll get into him later. And that podcast I mentioned earlier, it, they, like, Bob Ruff does a fantastic job going through it. And I plan to relay some of that when we get to the evidence and, other suspects and whatnot. He he talks about that and he brings up some very good points, but thank you again guys for joining us for part two of the West Memphis three. As I mentioned earlier, there are going to be several parts to this. Thank you for all the love and support we've gotten. You can listen to us for free on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MNO True Crime Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Murders Night Out. Also, if you like the show and want to support the show, click on the link in the show notes that'll take you to our main page where you can see all the platforms that we're on as well as hit the support button to you know show your support it it goes a long way it'll help us gain access to more reliable and more credible resources that we may not have access to at the moment and it just it helps in so many different ways uh thank you again for joining us and y'all have a good night yes Thank you. Bye. Bye.